and welcome to the Anthems Podcast. Today, we are kind of mostly in a place that I thought I was in on the last episode. It's an itty-bitty landlocked country deep in the middle of Europe. I did know roughly where this country was because it's been an answer on Worldle before. Other than that, I didn't know essentially anything about it. I didn't just pick the country to make another bad geography joke. And uh, I actually don't think I did make a geography joke there. Anyway, the anthem du jour is Oben am Ungen Rhein, or High on the Young Rhine. It's brought to us by a middle school report that one of my cousins did, probably in like sixth grade or something. Ever since then, she said she's been kind of obsessed with Liechtenstein. So I hope to provide an interesting story with at least a few things that will be new. So I was looking at my metrics on the podcast hosting platform that I'm using, and I noticed that I have listeners in at least a dozen countries so far. Thanks. It means more than you know for me to know that the internet letting you reach the world thing might actually be true. So that is a smooth as cool whip segue into a song. So listen to this, and I will talk to you again in about two minutes and 35 seconds. initial impression is nostalgia. This is because the tune is not only the tune of God Save the Queen, but it is also the tune of a whole lot of other patriotic songs from all over the world that were in use and are still in use. In the United States, one of our de facto anthems before the Star Spangled Banner was My Country Tis of Thee, 
often just called America. It was written by Samuel Francis Smith. Someday, uh, maybe I'll do a sort of roundup of almost anthems, because Smith's song was around for quite a while in that role. Regardless, my point is, is that it uses the same tune as High on the Young Rhine, and I sang the thing constantly in grade school. I don't dislike this song, but it is not on any of my regular playlists. As usual, I want to get us situated in the world before getting into the story. It's helpful for me, and I hope that it's helpful for all of you listening too. You may not be surprised to learn that the Rhine River forms part of the border of Liechtenstein with Switzerland. The river continues roughly south where the Swiss-Liechtenstein border goes east. The country is sort of shaped like a triangle, and the hypotenuse is the border with Australia. Excuse me, Austria. That would be crazy. The border is still split pretty equally between the two of them, about 25 and a half miles with Switzerland and very close to 21 and three quarters with Austria. It's on the side of a river valley, so it is a pretty hilly place. And despite some of that being literally the Alps, Liechtenstein's only an average of 1,400 86 feet above sea level. The highest point is the Grosbitz Mountains at 8,527 feet, a tiny mountain for a tiny country that is two-thirds mountainous and comes in at about 61 square miles, or 160 square kilometers. For scale, the U.S. city of Chicago is about one and a half times the size of this principality, of maybe 39,000 people, depending on the day. It is only the sixth smallest country in the world. And it is one of only two doubly landlocked countries, which is my new geography term for this episode, since I seem to find one of those each time, or geology. It means that Liechtenstein is completely surrounded by countries that are also landlocked, so that you have two international borders to cross before you can reach the shore. The only other one is Uzbekistan, but no spoilers about that, because we haven't gotten there yet. Part of the reason that I think Liechtenstein ended up being so small is because it is largely the result of a centuries-long process of one family gathering land in just the right places and gathering similar political influences and powers. Some scholars put that back at 1342 when a guy named Hartman III got a big chunk of the city of Valdez in a treaty with his brother after their father died. In 1379, it was made into part of the Holy Roman Empire because Liechtenstein was located along an important trade route that allowed for the only safe and reliable access to the Rhine from the east. It remained an important area for this and agricultural reasons up into the late 17th century. Crucially, though, sovereignty had not been established through excuse me, not been established according to the process in place wherein a princely ranked family needed to have direct possession of a portion of the land, so-called holding the Rhine. That changed in 1691 when a rich and important and princely ranked family called the Liechtensteins heard that a couple of counts in the Rhine Valley were up to their eyes in debt and made them what was a pretty sweet offer, but today works out to about 195000 U.S. dollars in uh, 2023 money. So, like a decent-sized house, depending on what part of the country you're in. 
This was a goal that the Liechtenstein family had been after since 1608, and when they first became a princely-ranked family. So nearly a century, and they were finally in possession of part of the Reich. Now that they were landed as well as princely, they were admitted into the 343rd member state of the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation. This was not actually the point at which they became a sovereign nation of their own, but January 23rd of 1719 is traditionally considered the birthday of Liechtenstein. Actual sovereignty was achieved for the country thanks to our pal Napoleon, of all people, and we'll keep seeing him in Europe because that dude was kind of a wrecking ball. Uh, after he ran roughshod over the continent and directly into a Russian winter, but shortly before him forcing the dissolution of the Roman Empire for once and for all, Liechtenstein was admitted into the Confederation of the Rhine as a courtesy to Johann I Josef, who is the 10th Prince of Liechtenstein. Josef was not actually asked before the decision, so I'm sure it was at least a medium surprise to him. But it worked out for the family, because when the big powers in Europe chopped everything back up at the Congress of Vienna, the little nation was allowed to remain and be an absolutist principality admitted into the post-Napoleonic German Confederation. It was such a model of absolutist government, in fact, that the princes of Liechtenstein were 100% not aware of any running of the government. The administration was entirely done by bailiffs, and while the prince and his family chilled out in Vienna and didn't even live in Liechtenstein, I learned that in this case, a, a bailiff... Because in the U.S. it's some sort of a, like a court cop. But in this case, a bailiff is an anachronistic term that is essentially an administrative position from the Middle Ages. And it is the highest ranked local representative of a particular sovereign. So actual technical sovereignty was achieved in 1806, and the country was allowed to remain a principality and an absolutist government, but it was also a tiny, tiny nation, and they were economic isolationists, they did not industrialize, and the prince rejected economic reform, and 1848 was about to happen in Europe. So economically, this place was a mess, but somehow still absolutism reigned in the little nation. It was not entirely doom and gloom and medieval bureaucratic titles, though. The first half of the 19th century did lead to a little bit of reform. In 1803, they introduced the smallpox vaccination. Compulsory schooling came two years later. And two years after that, they got a tax code, which was less unfair, but not much. And in 1812, they implemented the General Code of Austria as the law of the land. The particular code was widely implemented and is still in use today in some form, making it the oldest still used form of Germanic law as far as my internet sleuthing can tell me. Sometime after that, in fact 33 years, our microstate of interest reached the height of communication available in 1845 and was connected to the world via a stop for the Austrian postal system in the city of Valdez. Mostly, though, it was rough for the people living there. They were living in a country that was considered a European poorhouse at the time, and many of the residents became migrant workers in order to support themselves, including the Swabian children. Uh, sorry, 
This is one of the bad parts of history that we're going to hear about. You might be thinking, but hey, host of the show, you don't have to mention the sad stuff. You don't have to do that. I know. But we're still going to. Some of it we have to hear. Because the narrative is not a highlight reel. Uh, because history is not a highlight reel. That's what Facebook is for. And if you don't talk about bad things at all, then people might think they were just fine. So... These children were the shepherd's kids from Austria, Switzerland, and Liechtenstein, and they represented the poorest of the people there. They sent their children to labor markets uh, that these 5- to 14-year-old children hiked through literal snow-covered mountain passes to get to. And stuff like that is sad, and people are terrible. But things got a bit better in 1852 when a treaty with the Austrian-Hungarian empire solidified a textile industry in the country then in 1858 political stability became a thing for whatever it's worth in a principality when johann the second maria franz placidus colloquially known as the good took power and he kept it for the next 70 years he didn't die until the stock market crashed in 1929 and he also only visited his country six times Mixed feelings are allowed about this guy. Uh, I did a little bit of reading about him. And you are not the prince for 70 years and at least not occasionally a problematic human being. I encourage you to read on your own and let me know more through the channels I'll tell you about at the end of the show. But we will hear no more about this guy on the show because during the 1850s, the purported writer of the national anthem that I'm actually supposed to be talking about has been in the country for a little while. Father Jacob Josef Jacques was born in 1852 somewhere in Russia into a prominent military contracting family from Switzerland. Specifically, they're from a place called the Canton of Uri, a smallish bit of the German-speaking part of the country with about the same population as Liechtenstein. The family built prominence and influence through very successful military contracts with the Spanish from the end of 17th century right through to the beginning of the 19th. A couple centuries of governorships, brigadier generals, and similar flashy, well-paid titles practically guaranteed the Jock family some historical references. Father Jacob, as you might have assumed by the name, was a priest, a Catholic priest, in fact, and also a Swiss chaplain that the sources say was, quote, supported by bishops and cardinals. History also tells me that he was in the city of Bowser's doing whatever it was that an agricultural pioneer did in the 1850s. Then he was apparently too progressive for 1856 incarnation of the Catholic Church. Seems like that might be fairly easy to be. And he was summarily ordered to leave the country by the Bishop of Chur. These facts... And listening to historians that study these things make me fairly sure that he wrote the poem Up on the German Rhine sometime between 1852 and 1856. Apart from that, that little paragraph I just told you, there is absolutely nothing about this man in the history books. History's historians are not even sure that he is the guy who wrote this thing. So as with many anthem writers, he is mostly a historical ghost. It's just a thing that people have always said, and no one can find any records that say different, so he gets to be the writer. 
I mean, in some ways, that's kind of how a bunch of history works. It's actually not entirely great that way, and it's very frustrating that the history we were taught is not an accurate reflection of the world in which we're living, because I have come to really enjoy a robust historical written account. I'm doing a history podcast, so I like good history available for me. This man is a national anthem writing, and they are turning out to fill a weird little niche. So, we have the poem, and it exists in its original form. Before I tell you how that actually became the anthem, and reaches its current but possibly not final form, we gotta take a quick little diversion to talk about the melody. As I said, and as you have noticed, it is in fact the melody from God Save the King, or God Save the Queen. It is a melody that is used in a bunch of stuff, although, unless I'm completely wrong, usually get to edit that out if I'm completely wrong, but we'll see someday when I get through the list. Only Liechtenstein is the country that still uses the melody for a national anthem. As I mentioned earlier, the melody takes me back to middle school with my country Tis of Thee, and I recall many an awkward chorus class with that song. But we get a callback because it was also the melody for an unofficial Icelandic national anthem before we got Lof Songer. Again, maybe one day we can talk about that sort of stuff on the show. It was also the melody for the Swiss anthem, the national anthem of pre-state Hawaii, and there's others, but I want to save most of that stuff for when I get to the English anthem and actually start talking about that song. I will say, though, that the origins are rather murky, but the first publication of the thing in essentially its final form occurs in 1744, although there is one source I read that seems very sure that the melody was a combination of pieces of work by a man named John Bull, who was alive from 1562 to about 1628, and Henry Purcell, 1659 to 1695. But I'm less confident about something that's so poorly documented. It's similar to the melody of the Star Spangled Banner in that a whole bunch of different and mostly patriotic songs, except in this case, they're mostly Germanic countries. I'll explore a bunch more about the history and actual construction of the melody when we talk of the corresponding anthem. I'm not really sure when I'm going to get to that on the list, so keep listening. The melody began traveling around the world probably fairly immediately after being written in its 1744 form. Music has a way of doing that if it's popular stuff, and honestly, a lot of terrible unpopular music does that too. Coupling that with the first recording of singing of Up on the Rhine in 1895, and that gives about a four-year span of time for the song to circulate and become popular. First as a poem, and then at some point that the historical record is infuriatingly vague about, joined together with the music. The entire thing is very unsure, and a couple of weeks of digging around on the internet has netted me literally no more information, apart from thousands of people singing it together at the National Exhibition five years before the end of the 19th century. It can be inferred as strongly likely that the melody made its way over from Switzerland because their anthem at the time, no spoilers here for the future Swiss episode, used the same melody. And given Liechtenstein's diminutive size, there is a ton of fluidity between it and its neighbors as far as the population goes. I found one source that just sort of states that the anthem was unofficially adopted in 1875 and was printed in Die Liechtenstein's E National Hymn. Süddeutsch Press, I think, is how you pronounce that. 
And uh, that happened on the 21st of March in 1875. Everything before that is entirely oral history and possibly apocryphal as far as history goes. Honestly, I find the murkiness of history to be less frustrating with this anthem than some of the others, but I'm not sure why. What is not murky is that there had been a steady, if slow and sporadic, series of social progressions and economic reforms in the Principality as the final standing member of the Holy Roman Empire brought itself into the modern world. Now and then, that necessitated a revision to the Constitution, usually despite what the Prince really wanted, but the Constitution was written in 1920 and promulgated in 1929, it resulted in reform that enabled the customs treaty with the Swiss in 1923, and it also resulted in making the de facto national anthem into the official national anthem. Previously, at this point in the show, I've said a variation of, hey, hooray, we got to the anthem, and moved on towards talking about the song itself. But in the case of Up on the Young Rhine, there is a tiny twist. And I don't really like calling it a twist because that sounds silly, but I did it already, so here we are. Anyway, there is a development in the history of the anthem. Since before it was official, people in Liechtenstein had been lobbying to remove extensive references to another sovereign nation from their national anthem. Even though it's not really like that, but we'll get there. It was not until 1963 and the stigmatization of two world wars that the anthem was shortened to its current form and purged of references to Germany. With that, we now actually have the anthem, so we can talk about the song. Oh, no, there is one more thing. Not so much a fun fact as a historical, um, yeah, we don't do that anymore. Now, it is mentioned in at least six of the sources I read. It used to be traditional that one would raise their right arm vertically up during the anthem with an open hand. The atrocities of World War II made this exactly as common as you would think something that looks very much like the Nazi salute is. In the interest of historical accuracy, it is older by far than the Nazi salute. It was first used in 1699 as part of the allegiance oath to Prince Hans Adam. The first. He was the head of the family named after the castle Liechtenstein that finally bought the right pieces of land to get on the path to running their very own sovereign nation. Fascists ruin all kinds of things because symbolic association is a powerful historical force. Moving on. Musically. It's hard to call this song anything but anthem music, but I think technically it is a hymn. It's in the key of G, and that's really all I'll say about the melody. Uh, again, you'll get a harder look when we talk about England. The lyrics and the stuff behind them is the real meat of the story with Liechtenstein's anthem, which makes sense to me. They existed on their own before they were grafted onto an older melody, and I'll admit that I find the lyrics to be another weird choice for a national anthem. It just It's a weird, serious, it's a weird song to have as an anthem, even though it's you know, an appropriate song. As mentioned earlier, the current official national anthem, and the one that you heard earlier on, is a revised version that was finalized in 1963. More there in just a bit, but I'm going to read through the original first and talk about that for a little while. Then we'll do the official version. It makes more sense to fill out the discussion on a filled out poem 
or something like that was happening in my head. I was thinking it made sense then. On to the song. Up on the German Rhine, Liechtenstein leans against Alpenholm. This dear homeland in the German fatherland, God's wise hand saw for us. Where once St. Lucian bought peace to Raetia, there at the boundary stone and along the young Rhine, Liechtenstein fearlessly stands guard on Germany's watch. Lovely in the summertime, on the high pastures of the Alps, heaven's rest hovers, where the chamois leaps freely, the eagle swings boldly, the herdsman sings the ave to home. It is friendly to see. From green rocky heights with one glance, like the Rhine's silver band, the beautiful country lines, a small fatherland of quiet happiness. Long live Liechtenstein, blooming on the German Rhine, happy and faithful. Long live the prince of the land. Long live our fatherland, united and free through brotherly love. The work is a patriotic ode to Liechtenstein, and nearly a prototypical example of that style of poem. It's odd that it was written by someone that was just visiting the country for work, even if it was super close to his own home in Switzerland. But honestly, maybe it's not that odd, because it turns out you can write poems about literally whatever you want. And technically, yes, we're not 100% sure who wrote the thing, although I'm speaking as if we are. Given that 1850s Europe was steeped in nationalism, and that the decade was the turning point between romantic and whatever modernist poetry turns out to be, helps the poem make more sense. Jacob was definitely dipping his toes a bit into romanticism with the focus on natural beauty in much of the ode, but there's a lack of mysticism, and that's an important part of romantic writing. But this is straight-up nationalism. In verse, but sort of not in actual nationalism for Liechtenstein, even though it's clearly based on the lyrics and the timeline of history. Recall that our little principality is the very last intact member of the once mighty Holden Roman Empire of the German nation. This was dissolved properly in 1806, but the poem very clearly recalls that Liechtenstein was at the front of the empire when once was when. The second verse refers to St. Lucia and Raetia. Both of those are real things. Raetia was a region of the Roman Empire, and the explanation of where it fit into that web is wildly complicated stuff in the way that only a tiny province in the ancient Rome could be. If you want to look it up, it's an interesting, if historically dense, read that is not useful for me in this narrative. For our purposes, it is useful to know that it is now part of Switzerland. Uh, it's along the Rhine. St. Lucia was a Roman Catholic saint. She was supposedly imprisoned and to be forced into prostitution, but God made her immovable and immune to fire. So the Romans stabbed her in the neck, and that worked. I don't know. Maybe because the year 304 in the Roman Empire was a tough time to be Christian. But in reality, she was just one of many, many unfortunate victims of a wave of early Christian persecution, like murdering a bunch of people-level persecution that was perpetuated by the Emperor Diocletian. He reigned from 284 to 305 in the Common Era. Here's the thing, though. As far as I can tell, there is no, absolutely no, historical connection of any kind between the two. 
There's nothing even close between St. Lucia and Raisha. It's they're just two things that the guy mentioned in the song. Now, if I am completely spun out on this, please somebody correct me because I, I dug for days. I couldn't find anything connecting these two. Apart from those points, it's full of praise for the little countries. Important role perched at the visually stunning frontier of the German Confederation. And it's, uh, you know, it, it makes it sound like a real pretty place. The official version is way shorter. It's much abridged, and it removes the explicit references to Germany and reads as follows. Up on the young Rhine, Liechtenstein leans against Alpine heights. This dear homeland, the dear fatherland, God's wise hand saw for us. Long live Liechtenstein, blossoming on the young Rhine. Happy and faithful, long live the prince of the land, long live our fatherland, united and free through brotherly love. Honestly, I can dig the change. From what I consider a purely functional standpoint, this is a much better song. The other one is a poem. It's not bad, but not all poems are meant to be sung and set to music. Further, it fixed a nearly hundred-year-old sticking point about the anthem in that it was full of references to Germany, but not what your average 21st century human thinks of as Germany. After the final dissolution of the Confederation in 1866, the discontent with the lyrics began. Local patriotic groups, after strong opposition to the local Nazi party called the Volkdeutsch, they waged a pretty effective and extensive media campaign to keep the anthem unchanged. Despite the dissolution of the party in 1945 at the end of the Second World War, it was not until 1963 that the Parliament finally voted to accept the version that had been suggested by historian and genealogist Gustav Matt. This essentially corresponds to what we heard back at the beginning of the episode, except that what we heard is the 1983 official uniform version for orchestra and choir. With that, you know essentially everything that I can tell you about the national anthem of the Principality of Liechtenstein. It's a surprising and interesting little place that I'm glad I got to learn more about, and hopefully you learned a few things as well. The writing Recording and production for the show are all done by me, and I wrote and played the intro and outro music. The music was used with my permission. Unless otherwise noted, the anthems I play are all public domain stuff. My sources and other tasty bits I found are contained in the show notes. The most direct way to get to these notes is at anthemspodcast.com. You can find me on Facebook and WhatsApp as the Anthems Podcast. I am not doing the other socials because I don't have the energy or the time at the moment. I am going to start sharing these episodes with the hashtag AnthemsPod. So if you start following hashtag AnthemsPod, maybe it'll pop up in your feed. I've also heard that ratings and reviews actually super matter. So if you feel like doing that, it would super matter, apparently. Uh, so thanks ahead of time. Plus... If you give me feedback, I can get better at what I do. And getting better at what I do is a goal, because i got a bunch more of these to get through, so they should get better while I'm doing them. You can email me corrections, concerns, comments, suggestions, recipes, ideas, instructions, how to do awesome things. You can ask me questions. You can, I don't know, whatever you can do with email. Anthemspod at gmail.com. For better or for worse, you can call me. Leave me a voicemail at plus one two zero three. 
8375. Thanks for listening, folks. I'll be back.